Does anybody remember their first car? Yeah, it's always a big deal when you get your first car. It's, it's like the most exciting thing. I remember mine very well. I got a Toyota Corolla. I was at college at Palm Beach Atlantic. My parents came down driving this car. I didn't recognize them. When they got out, I was like, that is odd. I don't know where they get that car, only to tell me that it was mine. Great thing when you're a kid. You get your first car, and I got that feeling at that moment. It was awesome. Of course, I learned some hard lessons with my first car. Didn't take long, probably another year or so. I was driving home from West Palm to Leesburg in that car. And as I was driving home, it started to make an awful wreck. It started clanging and banging in there. I didn't know what in the world was going on. Slowed down, and I was getting close to home. wasn't too far. thought, well, I'll just keep pressing on. You know, I did that thing where you pull off the side and open the car. I don't know anything about cars. Open in the hood. I didn't know what I was looking at. Looked in there, saw nothing that made any sense. Closed the hood, got back in, drove on home. Not too much later, kabang, boom, stuff just... Oh, it was awful. I got out. Smoke is coming, and there's oil pooling on the ground. I'm like, oh, this is not good. So I, I called my, my dad and, and asked him, called the tow truck, and he did. Luckily, I was close enough to home. The tow truck could get it, take it to Leesburg, and they did. And turns out, well, apparently my engine had seized up. It had thrown a rod in the process, too, as well. It was just a mess. I thought it was odd. One of the questions that I was asked after he'd been in the repair shop, Dad said, son, when was the last time you changed the oil in that car? Actually, uh, Dad, I, I never changed the oil, which, which I didn't think I needed to because here's what you need to know. The car I learned how to drive on was an older car my parents had, and what would happen is you'd be driving, and after a while, a little light would come on, a little warning light, oil light, and I knew when that light came on, I took it to my granddaddy's shop. He had a garage in town. They'd change the oil, and that was fine. So I assumed that all cars worked like that when it was time to change the oil light. Comes. Now listen, I know if you have a newer car, it works exactly like that. But back then, those older cars didn't. And so I just was waiting for that light to come on. Turns out the reason the one came on in my old car, my car I learned to ride on, is because it had a little bit of an oil leak. The new one, the Toyota, didn't. And so I drove it till there was barely any oil in it. And it all seized up. You know what happens when you drive a car where there's hardly any oil? The friction in there gets so hard. Parts like weld themselves together. It was not good at all. I learned a very important lesson though along the way. I learned that cars take regular maintenance. Now I say that because we've been talking for the last several weeks about this idea of servanthood. We've been talking about who Jesus was. That's where we started. We looked at the idea of Jesus as the Son of Man when he said that, and he called back the image from the book of Daniel where the Son of Man is this messianic and divine term that Jesus was God in the flesh. And he said the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And then the next week we looked at the fact that he not only said that, but he demonstrated it in one of the the most humbling moments of his life outside of the cross when he as he was with his disciples in the upper room about to observe the Lord's Supper, took off his outer cloak, put a towel around his waist, and did the lowliest of tasks and washed his disciples' feet. And, and we've seen 
that example of Jesus. And we looked last week at the fact that you and I can be servants, and part of our calling is to follow his example. But here's what I want to talk about today, to be a servant and to serve all of your life and to do it joyfully and to not get burnt out or worn out. It takes, just like a car, regular maintenance. So I'm going to go through several things today that will help you be a servant a joyful servant, a long-term servant, a not discouraged servant the rest of your life. Now, let me say, going in, I am looking at a church full of servants. I watch the kind of things you do for each other and for the people in our community and through our church, and you are grateful. And I I know that at times that can get overwhelming, which is why I want to talk about these things today, so that maybe today you'll find yourself a little bit on the edge of being burnt out or discouraged I want you to think about these things we'll talk about and how they might could revitalize you and re-energize you to serve. Now, that's the positive. The negative thing is I made a decision that I'm going to go through five points today. And if I wanted to, I could make these into five different sermons. I actually first thought about it. Let's just make five sermons out of these things. But then I decided, no, that would be too long of a series. I want to get to this. So I'm cramming five sermons into one. Yeah, exactly. You know how long I usually preach. So hopefully we'll be out of here before 2 o'clock this afternoon. I'll do my best. I'll do my best. So let's just get right into it. Five things that you need to do, this regular maintenance, just like on your car, regular maintenance that will help you be a lifelong, valuable, encouraged, joyful servant. Number one, now this is not going to surprise anybody here. If you came today to a Baptist church, if you have any history in churches, you've probably heard this before, but I have to start here because this is the most important of all the things I'm going to say. Number one, the number one thing you need to do to be the kind of servant that can serve your whole life joyfully, actively, is to spend time with Jesus. If you want to get regular maintenance on your servant's heart, this is probably the most important of anything that I'll say today. Spend time with Jesus. Not a surprise, not new information. Probably for a lot of you, this is something you've known before. And I want to look at a passage of Scripture in this regard that will help us see just how important this is. We'll look at a couple. But the one that I want to mention is one you may be familiar with. It's the story of a couple of sisters. It's found in Luke chapter 10. And in the account in Luke chapter 10, we see Jesus visiting the house where these two sisters are. Now, now, ladies, how many of you have ever had house guests? Sure, lots of you, right? When house guests come, do you have to go to some special preparations to get ready? Of course you do. You, you, you do the things that you have to do. You go and you, you might spruce up the house. You probably have some, if it's a meal, some special dishes that you want to prepare, some of you, the ones that you, partic- you partic- think are particularly good, all of that sort of thing. You know, it's good. Now, guys, how many of you help? Exactly. Having company over? Time for us to get out. Ladies, you work hard at that. We know how hard you work. We are so grateful for that. And Mary and Martha are the two sisters here, and they're no different. Jesus is coming. Imagine how excited you would be if Jesus himself was coming to your house. You would want everything to be perfect. And he arrives, and we get this snapshot, this glimpse into the dynamics of what's happening. Verse 38 of Luke chapter 10, the Bible says this, As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to them. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. 
But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Makes perfect sense, right? Lots to do. Gotta look after these things. Lots of things that have to get done to make this visit good. And here, Martha's running around and doing it all, and Mary is just sitting there doing nothing. Just like your husbands, right? Exactly. Just like our husbands when we got a lot to do. That's what's happening there. And, and Martha is so fed up that she thinks maybe if she says something to Jesus, he'll help her out. And notice she, she goes to Jesus and says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work all by myself? Tell her to help me. Seems like a great plan. Jesus, I know you're on my side on this. You know there's a lot to do. Tell her to get up and help. And listen to how Jesus responds. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things. And then listen, verse 42, here's the key. But only one thing is needed. How many things? There's only one thing needed. And Mary has chosen what is better. And I will, it will not be taken from her. Did you hear what he said? He said to Martha, he understood that she had a lot to do. But he narrowed it down. He said, listen, in this situation... There's a lot to do, but there's only really one thing that is needed. Anybody here busy? Ridiculous question in our world, right? With the responsibilities that we carry, if you have a family, kids to deal with, you are busy. You've got a lot of things that you need to do. And in fact, what happens a lot of times in church world, and it's a saying that I've heard before, is, is something like this, busy people get things done. And so if you're busy in your normal life outside of church world, usually when you come to church world, those are the people that are also busy doing the things around church. There's a lot to do whenever we do anything, just to, to have a worship service on Sunday where you have the musicians that have to practice and be prepared. You have the sound and the projection. We have afterwards the, the breezeway and the snacks there. And we have Bible studies that meet after that. All sorts of things just for a couple of hours on Sunday morning have to be done. And we are busy and we have a lot to do. And it seems like our schedules are fuller and fuller and fuller, just like Martha. But I think if Jesus was here, he'd say to us what he said to Martha. He said, there's only really one thing worth doing. Only one thing that's needed. And Mary figured it out. She's spending time with me. Now that shouldn't surprise us because Jesus himself had a habit. In fact, throughout his ministry, we get these little snippets from time to time. And often what we see is as Jesus is going about his business, he would take time out for himself. He would take time out to spend with the Father. In fact, just a few chapters before this, in Luke chapter 5, we, we see this in verse 15. It, Yet the news about him, meaning the news about Jesus, spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. Now that's important stuff. Jesus is preaching. He's teaching the truth of God. He's telling about his Father. He's, he's doing what he was supposed to do, what he came to do as Messiah. And he's not only teaching, but he's healing people, the sick, those who are, are deaf or, or lame. He's healing them, changing their lives. And it says in the next verse, with all of that busyness, verse 16, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus often would do that. He would get away from the busyness. He would put aside the to-do list and he would spend time with his heavenly father. That's what allowed him to be so incredibly effective. That's what allowed him 
even when things were difficult, like just before the cross, to be able to focus, not my will, but your will be done. So the question is kind of obvious at that point. If Jesus had to take time out to spend time with God, how much more should we as his followers need to take time out from our busyness to spend time with him? If you want to serve as a lifetime servant, as a joyful servant, spending time with God is vitally necessary. Spending time reading God's word, the Bible, vitally necessary. Spending time in prayer, Jesus withdrew to lonely places and prayed, is vitally necessary. These are the things that re-energize and reinvigorate your service. They allow you to keep going when you're tired. They, they refresh you. In fact, the book of Psalm chapter 19 is a wonderful chapter. The heavens declare the, go- the glory of God, it says, and it, it goes from there. And verse 7 of Psalm 19 says this, The law of the Lord is perfect. Listen to this. Reviving the soul. Time spent in God's word is, is something that revives and refreshes us. So Jesus withdrew to lonely places and prayed. We, to be servants, to be effective servants, need to find that time to withdraw, to be with him. If you want to be a lifelong joyful servant, take time to be in prayer and in the word. Spend time with Jesus. Second thing, first of all, spend time with Jesus. Second thing, this is going to be your favorite, by the way. If you look, think of these five things, I'm going to make some people very happy right now. The second way to be a lifelong joyful servant, not to burn out, not to get discouraged, is this. Learn how to say no. In fact, let's all practice it. On the count of three, one, two, three. No, exactly it. I'm giving you permission. I'm telling you sometimes you have to say no. There is always more to be done. There is always something else demanding our attention. There's always another project. There's always another committee in church world. There's always some other meeting we have. I'm telling you to be joyful in your service. You've got to learn how to say no. Now, let me give you a caveat real quick, by the way. You can't, I'm just not giving you permission to say no whenever you ask. I'm giving you permission if you can say no if you are already serving in the way that best uses your gifts and abilities. So it's not, don't serve at all. I'm giving you permission to say no to everything. No, when you find your place of service, I'm saying you don't have to do everything. You, you need to, you can, in fact, you must at times say No, there are times when it just won't work. Now, sometimes we do that because of guilt. I've said before, in in the history of churches, we've peddled in guilt. Guilt has been a great motivator to get people to do things, to get people to volunteer to do things. Um, Sometimes we do it out of just wanting the approval of others, to think the more that we're involved in, the more important we are, the more people will look up to us. And we fear if we say no, or if we don't do that thing, we'll lose not only maybe the people's approval, but maybe God won't like us as much. But that's just not the case. You see, throughout the history of the church, there have been times where the leaders have had to say, we've got to draw a line here. In fact, very early in the history of the church, in Acts chapter 6, we see this passage that shows where the leaders of the church had to draw a line and say no. As the church was growing, I mean, think about it. In Acts chapter 2, 
3,000 people came into the church, so explosive growth for this church, this movement of Jesus Christ. And they've got all these needs to take care of, and one of the things that the early church did was take care of each other very well. In fact, at the end of Acts chapter 2, it says that, that they would sell things they had and put the money all together to look out for people that had needs. And a particular group of people that had a great need were widows. Um, that was a, a segment of society that didn't have many rights because of the nature of how uh, life worked in the first century. Being a widow meant you probably didn't have much in the way of, of earning potential or capacity. Your husband had passed. If you had a, a son, he could step in, but, but a lot of the widows didn't even have that. And so what happened is the church began to care for these folks. And in Acts chapter 6, it talks about a conflict that arose because some of the widows were being overlooked. It was maybe... The difference between the Hebraic widows, the Hebrew widows, and the, the Greek or Hellenic widows that, were, that was at issue here. But it turns out that um, in chapter 6, verse 1, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve, the leaders of the church, the apostles, gathered all the disciples together and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on table. So brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This is where we think in, in scripture, the idea or the ministry of deacons first shows up. These servants in the early church. Because the apostles, as the leaders of the church, had very particular things that they were responsible for you notice what it says we don't want to neglect the teaching and study of the word of god and prayer to do these things we have stuff on our plates to add to it means we won't do any of it very well and so they had to say no and allow other people to serve and that's the other thing about saying no if you think you're so important if i think i'm so important to this church boy i can preach to myself here that i have to do everything then what the result is, is nothing might get done well. So what these early Christians did was understood the need to say, no, we're doing this. And if you're serving, you're doing that thing. You know, this is what God has called you to do. When something else comes along, it's okay. It's necessary to say no. Now, I think it's always good if we can find a place where Jesus himself practiced this sort of thing. That seems like a pretty good place to hang out, and we see this, actually. Jesus was a very busy person, very much in-demand person. In Luke chapter 4, there is this snippet in his life that's kind of fascinating to me. In verse 42, listen to what Luke chapter 4, 42 says. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. No surprise, right? He went to a solitary place to pray. The people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. So you get the idea here. Jesus had been, if you, you read the, the few verses before, he'd been ministering that place, healed a bunch of people. They had flocked to him. It had probably been a long day of ministry. There were people that heard he was in town, maybe even went and got their sick relatives or had a need, and we're going to look for him early the next morning. He had gotten up and gone out. They came looking for him because they didn't want him to leave the town. But notice what he said, verse 43. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. He said no to that place because he had other things that were important to do. 
Jesus at times practice this principle jesus understood in his limitation while he was on this earth he couldn't do it all he had to say no the early church same thing so that's the second thing to serve well you got to learn to say no number three third point don't do it all alone if you want to serve god if you want to serve your whole life you want to serve out of joy and abundance, you have to bring somebody with you. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand sometimes it's just easier to do it yourself. I have this problem. I do this well. I have something that needs to be done, and this is the process. Maybe you have the same process that goes on in your mind. I think, well, okay, I could teach somebody to do this, but to do that, I would have to spend this much time with them explaining everything, or... I could take this much time and just do it and move on. All been there, right? I'd rather take this much time and move on than this much time. But the problem is taking this much time, you're not bringing anyone with you. You're not training anyone. You're not allowing someone else the opportunity to serve, to lead, to be a part of the process of seeing the kingdom of God go forward. In Exodus chapter 18, we see this very thing happening. Moses was the deliverer. He had come in and opposed Pharaoh, and God had acted miraculously through the series of plagues to, to, to soften Pharaoh's heart in a way to allow him to let the Israelites go. And Moses victoriously had marched them out, held up his rod, the Red Sea parted, they crossed the Red Sea. The whole army of, of Pharaoh was drowned in the Red Sea. And, and now Moses is the undisputed leader of the people. They looked to him because he had been their deliverer. And in Exodus chapter 18, we see what one of the results of that was. Verse 38, Exodus 18, or excuse me, verse 13 of Exodus 18 says this. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. And they stood around him from morning until evening. So Moses is the one that they looked up to and they trusted his leadership and they wanted his wisdom. And so they just made a line and all day long they would wait around to hear what he said. Verse 14, when his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you are doing for the people? Another translation says this, what are you trying to accomplish here? You know, Jethro, his father-in-law didn't come to him and said, wow, Moses, you're a great leader awesome that all these people trust you look at the number of people that want you no he didn't say that at all he looked at moses and said moses what do you think you're doing what are you trying to accomplish here this isn't working this isn't the best way to do this why do you verse 14 again sit alone as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. And Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is not good. What you are doing is not good. You shouldn't have all that on you. You need help, in other words. He said, you and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me. And he gives him some advice. And he says, divide the different cases. And you let other judges deal with the minor matters. And you just deal with the big stuff. Train others. Bring other leaders along 
And so I think Jethro comes to him, and he, and he comes at this from the perspective of, this is not good. This is a problem, Moses, that you're doing it on your own. It's a problem because it's bad for you, because you can't do it all. There's only one person with all of these concerns. You will burn out. There's no way you can handle that. And it's not good for the people either. They're standing out in the sun. You ever been in the desert? You know how hot it would be in that part of the world from morning sunup till sundown? They, they have to be exasperated by the weight. At that point, it wouldn't matter what Moses did. It's just not going to satisfy them. And, and it's not good for the big picture. This group of of people that have left Egypt, one, two million of them, one leader, everything hinges on one leader. That's not a good plan. You need to develop other leaders. You need to give people, other people a chance to serve. You cannot do it alone. So that's the third thing. Don't do it alone. and You'll serve longer and you'll serve better. The fourth thing, and if the saying no was your favorite part, this is going to be your least favorite of the five points. This is going to be the one that you won't like. And, it, and it's really tough, but we have to talk about it. And, and if you want to serve for a lifetime, if you want to serve God in a way that honors him and, and preserves your sanity even, you have to have the right expectations and attitudes. Now, now let me be very clear about this. What is the right expectation and attitude? Most people, when we do something, when we serve for someone else, we want to be acknowledged. We want to be thanked. We want gratitude to come back to us. But here's what I'm saying. That is the actual wrong expectation and attitude. Now, that's because I'm having this conversation with you. This is the sermon today. Now, if I was having the other sermon, what to do when someone serves you, point number one would be to have the attitude of gratitude, like we preachers like to say, to be grateful, to thank somebody for what they've done. But we're not talking about that. We're talking of the perspective of the person doing the serving. And if you have the attitude that you should be acknowledged and somewhere the expectation is you will be praised for it, recognized, given a pat on the back, that is not the way to do it. Now let me show you this in Scripture, Luke chapter 17. Interesting passage here. In Luke chapter 17, we see an account that shows us the kind of attitude that will allow us and the right attitude to have. Again, maybe not very popular, maybe not what you want to hear, but this is what uh, Jesus says. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, or wouldn't he instead say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, listen to this, this is the right attitude. We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now, I told you this is tough. I told you this is not a good thing to have to process but it's what we need to have is the right attitude going in because we can never expect the people we serve to be the ones that reward us, to give us our reward. Our ultimate reward comes from God. Isn't that why a couple times in Scripture it would say, and God who sees what you do in secret will reward you. If we go about always expecting 
that somebody will recognize, somebody will thank, somebody will pat on the back, and it doesn't happen, we're only going to be frustrated, angry, bitter. And that will lead to burnout and depression and not a lifetime of joyous service. Let me give you an example. Anybody here have teenagers? Now, kids, don't feel like you're teenagers. Let's not pick on teens too much today. Kids, we all have kids. Let's, let's, okay, let's do this kind of idea. Like, let's say maybe mom had been having a kind of a difficult time with one of her kids, one of, say, one of her sons. And, you know, they'd kind of been at it a little bit, and, and mom was, was feeling bad. And so she wanted to do something nice for her son. And so she thought, she said, what can I do? And she decided, you decide as the mom, hey, here's what I want to do. Or even the dad, you decide as the parent to kind of gloss over, I'm going to make my child their favorite meal. You think about it, and you're like, okay, what's their favorite meal? Their favorite meal, meatloaf. They love meatloaf. So I'm going to do that. I, and, and so what you do, you say, I'm going to do this for tonight for dinner. I'm not going to tell them. I'm going to surprise them. I'm going to make their favorite meal. So you, you go to the grocery store, and, and it's a Saturday, so it's crazy up there. There's people everywhere, long lines, but you don't care because it's worth it. You're going to go to the grocery store. You're going to wait in that line. You're going to buy the special meatloaf mix that they like. You know, going to ask special from the meat department to put that together for you. Nice big one. You get all the ingredients. You get in line. You kind of say, okay, I know it's frustrating, a lot of traffic, but you're finally home. So you heat up the oven, you mix it all together. Meatloaf takes a while. You know, it's got to bake a while. It makes the house hot. You're, you're doing the favorite sides with it, maybe mashed potatoes or something. You got it all together. And, and, you know, the child comes home and you're like, okay, now it's time. You have it together. You put it on the table. Say, okay, dinner time. And this is how they come out. You know, maybe got their phone texting right that's how kids are texting sit plop down at the table da, 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 and and doesn't even notice how nicely the table set so that's okay I, I wait till he sees the meatloaf when i bring out the meatloaf he'll notice and so you open the oven you put it's beautiful it's just the smell is so perfect and you walk it to the table and you kind of make a little extra noise you want and you you set it right down in front of him still texting didn't even look up didn't even acknowledge there's meatloaf there. Like, okay, well, maybe he hasn't noticed yet. So you get, get the serving thing, and you, you cut, like, a really big piece, bigger piece than you would normally, a nice, thick piece of meatloaf, and you put it right in front of him. Like, how can he not see this? He's looking down at his phone, and his plate's right there. He sees the meatloaf on his plate. And as soon as it's there, he doesn't even look up, doesn't look you in the eye, doesn't acknowledge it, doesn't say thank you, just picks up his fork, and can I be excused? Yeah be excused whatever you're seething on the inside you're upset you know how could he a little ungrateful crumb snatcher you know i mean you're just uh, you're just mm. that's that's the result isn't it when you're expecting when you do something for someone to get something back and you don't get it back that's where you end up and so that's why in this passage what's the point look you're a servant when you serve somebody You've been serving out in the field all day is the account. And you come in and you don't expect the master to say, oh, wow, you look tired. Listen, why don't you sit down, put your feet up. I'll go make you dinner. No, what does the master say? It's my dinner time. Get busy. No rest for the weary, right? And you go in there and you do it. And after you've done all your work, then you can worry about yourself. And the end of the day, your attitude, as we saw right there in verse 10, what's the attitude? We are unworthy servants. That's what we are. We have only done our duty. 
you want to have a lifetime of service, just understand that your reward doesn't come from the people you serve. Don't have the expectation that everybody's going to just say, oh, you're so wonderful. No, have the expectation that God, who sees, will one day reward you, that your service is for him and you're an unworthy servant. And that will help you long term be the kind of servant who can serve joyously. Last thing, real quick, real quick, last thing. If you want to serve well, if you want to serve for a lifetime, number five, learn how to rest. You've got to rest. You have absolutely, positively got to be someone who takes rest seriously. And I'm not just talking about get a good night's sleep, although that's important. All the studies say so many hours of sleep. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a bigger rest. I'm talking about the kind of rest that you understand that you're just putting everything aside and that though at times you feel like the whole world depends on you doing a little bit more, you just kind of put that aside. Now, rest comes from the very first pages of Scripture. In fact, way back in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, in the second chapter, Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, listen to what the Bible says, but the se- by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. Now, let's be clear. God did not rest because he was tired. God did not, for six days, work from sunup to sundown and do all that sort of thing, and he was just beaten. He's like, I can't go another minute. I just got to rest. No, in fact, the creation that God made didn't tax him at all. He spoke and things happened. There was nothing about that activity that tired God out. But he set from the very beginning, the very first pages of the Bible, this pattern of rest, that rest needs to be built into the pattern of our lives. Notice just before that in verse 31, notice one of the other dynamics to why God had rested. It says, God saw, chapter 1, verse 31, all that he had made, and it was very good. Now, God looked, he had worked, yes, not taxed himself, but worked, yes, and he looked, and it was very good, and so he could sit down with the assurance of a job well done, that nothing else needed to be done, that all that he had put his hands to had been done well. And here's what I want to suggest to you. We need to have that same kind of rest. And the only way we get that is through understanding something very important. You see, because most of us have a little voice that talks to us in the back of our head that says at some level, we need to do more. We need to get better. We can't rest. There's always something else. Oh, we need to get to this. This depends on that. I've got to prove something. And I think ultimately what that voice is trying to convince us to do is we have to keep doing these things somehow to prove ourselves to God. That we as Christians sometimes can work, 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 go, 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 do the church thing, do the life thing, try to do everything so well that somehow we think God looks down and is like, wow, I'm glad you're on my side. Don't know if I could do it without you. Thanks for working for me. And that is the wrong attitude to have. It's kind of a works-based idea of salvation. Instead, we need to understand something that God understood from the beginning. And we're going to see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 in particular. Now listen to this. This is, this is so important. If you want to rest, you've got to get a hold of this truth, and this truth has got to get a hold of you. Listen, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, God made Jesus, who, who never sinned, to be sin for us, so that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God. What's that saying? That is saying, when we are in Christ, when we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we are trusting him for forgiveness, for salvation. When God looks at us, he sees us as righteous. And there's nothing we can do to add to that. And there's nothing that we can't do or don't do that somehow subtracts from that. So part of the foundation of the attitude of rest for a believer is understanding God has done for me what I am incapable of doing, what was impossible for me to do, and so I'm just going to sit down and trust that what God knows is enough. And when God looks at creation and he said this is very good, he rested. And when God looks at you through Jesus, he says you are righteous, which is better than very good, and so you can rest. But you're like, Pastor, there's so much to do. There's always more to do. Yes, 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 yes. And here's my favorite. Some people say, well, we can't rest because the devil never takes a vacation. Well, here's my question. Who do you want to be like more? Whose example do you want to follow? God, who took a day off and rested, or the devil, who never does? Isn't that what we're talking about? Yeah, there we go. God set the example. He set it in the pattern of creation saying to us that we need to rest. And then he acted in history to provide the relief that we need to rest in. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you want to serve joyfully for a lifetime, you have to learn how to rest. Those are the five things. Those are the things that will allow your service to continue that'll help stave off burnout and frustration. What are they again? Well, let's just go back through them real quick. Number one, you got to spend time with Jesus. You got to find that lonely place, prayer, Bible study. Number two, you got to learn to say no. You have gifts, use them when you're using them. You can say no to everything else. Number three, don't do it by yourself. Find someone, train them, do it with them. Build leaders around you. Number four, you have to have the right attitude and expectation that your reward comes ultimately from God. And number five, Learn to rest. And rest primarily in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for you. Something that gives us rest for our souls. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you, through Jesus, demonstrated what it means to be a servant who, when he came, lived a life, not as one to be served, but instead to serve and ultimately by giving his life as a ransom for many. Thank you that he gave us the example of things like washing the disciples' feet. And thank you that we can, in your name, serve others. And I pray today, Lord, for the many servants that are in this room, for the hours that have been given in service to you and to others, I'm grateful for that. Father, I want us to be people who can serve you for a lifetime, serve you with joy, serve you without burning out and getting frustrated and bitter. And so, Lord, teach us how to find that time for you. Help us know when to say no. Help us to find that other person or other people to do it with us. Help us to have that right attitude that ultimately it's you who rewards us. Help us to rest. Lord, I, I pray today 
if there's someone here who has not found that rest that you offer, the rest of salvation, who thinks that by their service, by their good deeds somehow, they're going to impress you. And that if they do enough, they can earn your love. Lord, help them to see that you've already demonstrated your love in a way that's undeniable when you sent Jesus to die on the cross. Help them to know that they don't have to add to what you've done, but just receive it, just to rest in the reality that you see us who know you, who have received the gift of salvation through your son Jesus. You see us as righteous. Lord, today, if there's someone here who needs to know that, who needs to give their life to you, may today be the day where they turn to you in faith and admit they need a Savior and recognize what you've already done for them. And I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.